You're listening to Key Conversations for Leaders. This is episode number 41. Welcome, everybody. In today's episode, we'll be discussing how it's not about confidence, it's about courage with Pollyanna Lenkich. We'll be talking about how focusing on confidence can actually hold you back, the power of creating a new identity, and the one thing you need when your shoot doesn't open, literally, and much, much more. Leadership is about vision. It's about creating a vision and sharing that vision with others in a way that inspires them to walk with you towards its fulfillment. Along the way, leaders encourage, motivate, guide, and even challenge people to bring their best each and every day. And it's all done through conversations. That's what this show is about. Better conversations for better leaders. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Key Conversations for Leaders. I'm your host, John Ryan. And today we have a very special guest, Pollyanna Lenkich. Pollyanna is a coach, mentor, facilitator, and speaker. She's one of Australia's leading professionals in lifting professional performance in global and national organizations. She achieves this by developing high-performing teams, elevating employee engagement, and maturing the potential and of all. Having built a multi-million pound business from the ground up, Pollyanna knows the importance of rewards of high performance. She's also the author of Women in Success and is a regular contributor to Australia's best training business blog, blog which is smartcompany.com.au. She is considered their expert on teams for the site. Welcome to the show, Pollyanna. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation, John. You're welcome. I'm looking forward to our conversation. You know, I wanted to start out. I know that you know, you're obviously you know, you're from Australia, but when you started out, you actually built your business in London. You went to London with, with not a lot of resources or, or network. Can you tell us a little bit about how how you built your successful business from scratch, literally? Um, thank you. Well, we we it's always on the on the shoulders of um, community and giants, isn't it? We all build from you know support around us. Uh, however, I did. I landed in London with forty pounds in my pocket. I think it was traveler's checks back then because it was the late eighties. Um, and yeah, I didn't know anyone. I had no return ticket home. You could do that back then. You could turn up um, as long as you went through Dover and not Heathrow. They let you in. Um, and then I just had the. So that was back in eighty six. And in nineteen ninety, I had the opportunity to um, partner in a business that was already set up, but. Um, my business partner at the time wasn't able to leave his full-time role to work on the business. I think that's a common thing um, that happens with entrepreneurs. You start your side hustle um, and it had been a side hustle for him for a long time. So I took it on board full-time, not really intending. I wasn't really sure, to be honest. It was an industry I didn't know. It was a specialist IT recruitment consultancy. It specialised in sort of uh, it had a niche in unit trust investment management business sector with, with IT knew nothing about that, knew nothing about recruitment. Um, but what propelled me was a bet, actually. <laughs> it was out one night and and one of um, my business partner's uh, friends sort of pretty much tapped me on the knee and went, so you're going to be doing a bit of secretarial for the business. And I took offence to that. I thought that was a little bit, you know, sexist and, and um, made a bet and just said, hey, you, I'm going to be earning, I'm going to double your salary by the end of the year, which was complete bravado and I had no context for that. Um, and I woke up the next day and went, oh, that was, um, God, I've got to do this now. Um, and for context, I left a £14,000 a year job as an EA to two managing directors of a media company. And this person was earning £1,000, uh, I think he was earning £800 a day. 
so if you do the numbers, that was looked like a very out of reach. And and I did. I actually I achieved that goal um, in that first year. I was just you know became very focused and driven. Um, so yes, that was um, the sort of uh, not so salubrious beginnings, but it was it was an incredible experience. So. In, the, in that situation, it was obviously it was a challenge. It, it was a risk. What do you think was it inside that that really drove you to commit to doing that and obviously achieving that result? I think, look, I was 24, you know, and I was in a place where I didn't have history. And I think there's power to that, John, when you go somewhere else and nobody knows you, you can actually reinvent yourself. Um, in a way that uh, strips away those bound, the, the, the box that we put ourselves in because we know that the box we put ourselves in is, is far more damaging than the box others put us in. But, you know, sometimes coming out of that box, there was no one there to say, hang on a minute, that's not you. Um, and I came from a, you know, a regional Victoria town um, here in Australia, which was about an hour and a half from our main city in Victoria, which is Melbourne, which is where I now live. And look, compared to cities in the US, Melbourne's a country town. Yeah, you know, we, we, we say we're a city, but really we're just a, you know, globally we're not really, we're not a massive city. Um, so coming from the country, it was even smaller and, you know, there was often um, signposts to remind yourself of where you came from and who you were um, and others to reinforce that, which is not always helpful. Uh, so I just, fear of failure, I think, I made that bet. And I took it, I just thought, I'm not, I'm just not stumping up and going, I didn't do this. And I remember, you know, I spent a long time clearing out the spare room. It was like in, in the UK, every house has what they call a box room, like a really small room. You wouldn't even get a single bed in there, but it's just like this really small room. And so that's where I put a desk and a phone because we didn't have PCs or internet back then. We had landlines. You might have to Google that if you're younger than me, which you probably are if you're listening to this. Um, so I had a phone and a notepad. And I remember just sitting down going, I've cleaned this office. I actually have to get to work now. But I didn't know what that next step was. So I just burst into tears. And I can't remember that point of like being this dribbling mess on my desk going, I don't know how the hell I'm going to do this to suddenly going, I'm doing this. And that bit's a little bit blurry in my memory, but I just remember being distraught, just going, oh, my God. The first step I took was I contacted um, people in the industry and said, I'm, you know, I'm doing this work. Oh, I've got to say, I don't really know what I'm doing, but it's a great opportunity. Uh, can you tell me what are the things that you really value in the service you get from people who are doing this work? And what are the things that really bug you off? that you just sort of, you know, recruitment consultants back then in the 80s, um, so in the 90s, didn't have, um, you know, as good a reputation as, as they have now. It wasn't yet a profession that was um, mainstream, if that makes sense. So I found out the good, the bad and the ugly and decided I'd focus on the good. And, and I think that was a massive turning point. And by seeking out for help, John, you know, if someone comes to you and says, I need some help, you're not going to say, you know, get lost, you freak, and put a restraining order on them. I'm hoping that you wouldn't do that. So right. people were really generous and they were helpful. And, and if you think about all the great work that Brene Brown does, um, you know, it's that vulnerability, that honesty piece. I wasn't trying to be something I wasn't. I was genuinely looking to find excellence in the work I was doing. So I'm hearing inside of that, one, you were able to shed the 
confines, the box from the past. Like no, mm. no one, you're in a new country, you're, you're here, the role of who you can show up to be from a being perspective was unlimited. Yeah. And you had that vulnerability to recognize what you know and what you don't know and to ask for help in that space. So it sounds like being comfortable and taking that risk and being authentic and vulnerable, as you said, is a major part. Is that one of the things that comes up in your work with teams too? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, there's there's the, there's no, you know, and if you think about leading teams, leading, um, uh, you know, being a leader to another individual person where you're um, mentoring them and supporting them, no one, no, no, no leadership is isolated. It's not a, a single person game. It's, you know, we all stand on the shoulders of others. We all, you know, are embraced by our community. We all need others to do the work we do. So when I work with teams, I work from a systems thinking lens. So, you know, the first part is you must know yourself, know thyself, um, be courageous enough to be vulnerable and, you know, and not be messy about it. You know, there's, there's really messy and then there's, you know, vulnerability. So how do you take that vulnerability and build um, you know, step by step, you think about all that great work that James Clear talks about, micro, you know, those atomic habits, you know, those micro steps a little bit each day. And I think that, I think that is a game changer. And I think without realizing that's what I did, you know, because I had no context, I had no coaches, I had no mentors back then. So I found them. I didn't even know that uh, there was this thing called a mentor that existed. Uh, for the work that I was doing. So it's sort of some of it happened organically, but it was just getting up every day, having a process, having a routine, um, you know, finding out what I didn't know. I was never frightened to say, I don't know how this works. And that, I believe, was a pivotal strength, you know, because when you do that bravado piece and I know it all and I'm doing this now, I don't think I would have got the same help that I got back then. And I worked my buns off, you know, I worked really hard and, um, and loved it. The first time I helped somebody else get a job, it filled my heart. I can't tell you the joy that that was, you know, so it started to have real meaning for me. You know, and, and that was definitely something that changed how I approached the work and the success that followed. Well, I mean, you've identified, you know, taking risks, one, moving to another country, taking on new roles, expressing even your own vulnerability is a risk as well. And how you do one thing is how you do many things, including right. you're a bit of an adventurer. Like I know that you have done skydiving. Can you share us a little bit about your experience? I understand there's some things that happened when you were doing skydiving in Kenya, I believe. Is that correct? Correct. You've done your research. <laughs> yeah, it's correct. I um, look. I, I was very fortunate to skydive for over a fifteen-year period and jumped with some extraordinary people around the world. Did a lot of skydiving in Arizona as well, um, which was fabulous. Onto the the desert there, they lots of fun stuff to have you know, good adventures. But yes, I well, it depends. I'm either very lucky or very clumsy, depending on on your lens here. But we were skydiving um, in uh, just outside of Mombasa. Uh, and on one of the trips that I did, I did a couple of trips there, I, we jumped from 18,000 feet. So at 15,000 feet, you need oxygen, but we were in a fast plane. We we're probably a little reckless, and we said, let's just go up a little bit higher. So, you know, I'm sure we won't get hypoxia because, you know, we're going up fast. So that was obviously a decision that wasn't a smart decision. We were doing an eight-way formation over Malindi Beach. It was sunset. Oh, my God, best time to jump out of an airplane. You know, the sky's all pink and blue, and it was beautiful. 
The problem was as we jumped out, I was a, you either have what they call floaters or divers. I was a diver and I sliced my head. There was, a, there was like a little hook on the door. And I remember earlier on in the day going, you know what, we've got to tape that up. Some Muppet's going to slice their head open on that door if they don't duck. And of course that Muppet was me. Uh, so I came out and had raised up a little bit, smacked my head, sliced my head. Um, and the next thing I knew it was 5,000 feet and that's tricky, you know, so 18,000 feet to 5,000 feet. Um, and when I came to, I remember, um, an instructor in my early days when I was training, um, doing my skydiving ratings, he said, uh, three seconds to save your life when it goes to hell. And so my first thought was, can you vomit in free fall? That's not a life-saving thought um, because I was feeling really nauseous. I couldn't see very well because there was this gooey stuff, you know, on my goggles. I was bleeding. Um, my second um, thought was I know there are sharks in the water because there was um, we had a warning in our briefing. That's obviously two seconds gone, probably a little bit longer. My third one was, you know, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, but the tide was in, um, so we had a really narrow landing area, crosswind landing, um, and look, it all worked out well. I'm here, you know, talking to you today. But I'll often say to people, John, you know, what, what do you think saved my life that day? You know, because when we looked at the video, you know, the formation built over here and I'm falling completely stable over here. Uh, so nobody knew I was in trouble. So someone coming to get me is not, not, not what saved me that day. What do you think? Training. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. training and you know what most people say when I, I I ask that question they'll say things like um I, I got lucky um someone helped you um you were confident uh, or a whole manner of things and I go yep none of that muscle memory muscle memory from training yeah. and exactly to your point earlier on the steps that I took um, in my early business with naive naivety is a great thing when you're starting out when you're 24 because you don't know what you don't know and there's power to that yeah um so those micro steps every single day um built skills capability um habits you know really good productive habits and in my skydiving uh, muscle memory i was i was out for the count and when you look at the video the fact that i was falling completely stable that's muscle memory that's training i don't know if you've ever jumped but before every jump and we used to do eight to 10 a day on holidays. Eight was my happy place. Um, we did 15 minutes of reserve drills, training, like physically, verbally, physically. We went through the whole motions. We had a, we practiced the dive. So 15 minutes times eight jumps a day or diving ten. That's a lot of muscle memory. Muscle memory saved my life. And it's that prepared spont spontaneity piece. What can we do so that when we have to stand up spontaneously and be ready, that we're prepared for and I think you know muscle memory saves your life and, and continues to save me on many ways uh, so it's a really important skill to develop whether it's a physical skill or whether it's a you know a verbal or a work skill or you know if you're, if you're nervous about presenting then that muscle memory you just keep on doing it regardless if you're nervous you know which is why I, I throw big rocks at confidence we don't need confidence to do this we just need to practice we need a process we need to create good habits, all stuff. I'm, I'm, I know I'm talking to the converted here, all stuff that you know. Um, so re-looking at our beliefs and what we believe and, and sort of flicking back to something that you said earlier on, John, is 
I didn't know what the ceiling or the cap was when I set up my business when I was 24 um, and started working on that full time on my own. And I remember going to my very first How to Be a Good Recruitment Consultant course and I was so nervous. I remember going, I'd been doing this job for two years by that point and everyone was at least 10 years older than me and I used to always think that, you know, I was working with all these old men. They were probably only 35, bless them, but, you know, I was 24, 25, um, I think probably 26 by the time I went to this um, course and I was so nervous because they were saying words like pipeline funnel and I'm going oh my god what's a pipeline do I need one of those because I just didn't have any of the terminology I didn't have a clue and I was talking to one chap and he's going all right darling you know what you got to do right when you when you're successful like me you're going to have this you're going to have that you're going to have that and this light bulb went off and I went oh my god I'm triple billing this guy you know and he's I'm so glad I didn't meet you two years ago because I would have put a ceiling on what I thought was possible um and that that just clicked something for me and went you know it's really important who you take advice from it's really important that that advice doesn't create a a lower ceiling for you Mm -hmm. uh, because that if I hadn't listened to him two years ago I would have got to his level and thought oh I made it I've made it whereas I had no idea that was a very pivotal moment Um, so I hadn't created I'd created the muscle memory in the work I was doing to exceed those um you know, those limits. Does that make sense? I think it does. And I'd like to clarify a little bit. So um, one on the, you don't know what you don't know. Sometimes it's good to not know what you can and cannot do because you can surpass that. And also connecting it to the, the scattering, the muscle memory. So when you were unconscious, when you were falling, you were stable, the stable diving to make sure I understand the terminology was your body was in a free fall that was sustainable, not flipping on flat flying, just because okay. if I was buffeting, I wouldn't have, if I was buffeting, I would not have come out of that. If I was, because if you think about spinning at terminal velocity, mm-hmm. um, then coming to, I, I very much doubt I would have been able to get out of that. Okay. So that literally unconsciously, because of your training, the muscle memory that was there, your body knew I'm in mm-hmm. this environment. This is how I behave when I'm in this environment, even though you were not conscious Correct. at the time. Phenomenal. Love that story. Thank you so much for sharing that gift. But it also goes to, you know, and you've written extensively about confidence and the the dangers of of what you label the confidence quest. And I think, of course, many people out there are like, well, I just want to be confident and I could just feel confident. What are we missing for those that are on that delusional quest, as you might say? Look, I, I do think it's a little bit of self-deception and it's a, it's a um, group self-deception. I about, look, about in 2000 when I was arranging for the sale of my company, I started thinking about, uh, I'll just have to give some context, um, how women see and perceive themselves through the lens of success. And confidence was a theme that just kept coming up. If only I had more confidence, if only I could always be confident, if only I could be confident when I needed to be confident. So this confident narrative was, you know, was there and I was just going, I don't know that we need confidence because I didn't have any confidence probably for the first, you know, eight years of my business, I reckon, but I still just got up and did it anyway. What if we connected with our courage instead? And I know Brene Brown has has also done some um, great work on, you know, connecting with courage, um, you know, be courageous. And we already have that courage within us. And, you know, for anyone here who is listening to this and saying, but I like when I feel confident. Yeah, we all do. 
awesome, enjoy it. But it's a roller coaster. So therefore, if you're riding the high of confidence, just enjoy it. You know, um, however, know that we're seeing what plays out in the world when overconfidence is played out as well. I just don't think it's, um, I think it's a false, you know, we're, we're worshipping at false gods here. Whereas if we look at our courage, then we can see um, what we're capable of. And if we know what we're capable of, then we're limiting ourselves because we don't know what we're capable of. What we are capable of is doing hard things. I think the, the past 12 months has shown that. And, you know, I did a, a Google search this morning, 51 seconds, 887 million responses are shown when you type in confidence and women. I'm, I'm sure it's probably different now. Um, and, you know, all these titles are popping up, boost, drive, build confidence, tell us about your confidence gaps and how to fill them. You know, let me help you be empowered and be confident. You know, I just sort of go, you know, it, it's like a little bit of a vitamin B deficiency, isn't it? Maybe we just need a, a inoculation so that women, you know, can be cured of this terrible demise of lacking confidence. So all the research points to women are lacking confidence. Um, and a lot of men who are uh, supporting women to um, be successful in their lives and, uh, and in the workplace are misguided and are coaching them on confidence. So stop, <laughs> just stop. Coach on skills, capability, give stretch assignments, um, shadow, mentoring opportunities. You know, do practical things that creates that muscle memory so that when the time happens um, and you need it, it's there for you. We don't need a jab. Um, you know, so just remember, women are already powerful. We're already talented. We're already creative. We're already resourceful. And we're already whole, like every other human being on the planet, men and women. However, we seem to be coming towards women's development and have done for decades on a deficiency-based model. It's time to stop that. So women are not lacking. Our systems are lacking. I love that. I want to find out more uh, about that as well as we uh, continue this conversation. Let me clarify, make sure I, I understand where you're coming from. So from that confidence, you said there's nothing. So really, there's nothing wrong with having confidence. And there is a problem, of course, with having too much confidence, because that's when your competence does not match your actual ability, I suppose. But really, why wait until you're in that zone of competence before going for what you want and developing that muscle memory? Because just doing the work, getting the skills, practicing daily, developing muscle memory, gets you that place of confidence. And if you don't make it right away, who cares? You're still getting the skills anyways, which is what you need to get the results. Correct. One of them, uh, I'm running a, a virtual online leadership program for a beautiful group of people. And one of the participants, um, Justine, has a, a thing in her team where they talk about failing forward. And I just love it. I'm like, Justine, I'm stealing that. I'm going to use that all the time. You know, um, building that muscle memory means we need to fail, but let's fail forwards rather than failing backwards. And I think it's a really beautiful phrase that she shared with the, the cohort in, in the team because you know, you're going to fail. You just That's that's the stretch goal. Um, and there's a, a coach in the US called Rick Tamlin who has a, a program called The Big Game. I worked with Rick um, years ago. He's a fabulous chap. And he sort of talks about, you know, when we want to play a bigger game in life, if we know what, if we know how, it's not a bigger game. You know, so it's really interesting um, how much we diminish what's possible because confidence is it's that thing that will never always be there. It's vapor. Um, so we're, we need something more solid to hold on to. Is that our box that we put ourselves in that 
I'm not confident when we're making an outside judgment about our competence and, and worthiness that's really limiting us and holding us back, back to the first thing we talked about? I think it's a, it's very, I think there's complexities. It's like a kaleidoscope. Um, we know thyself is the reason Socrates wrote that on the Temple of Delphi, Delphi and is the reason that any, any great um, leader or anyone who's done the magnificent things in the world knows themselves. You know, so some of it is that self-peace. You know, what's my relationship with confidence and, and what I feel I need and what I feel I'm lacking and how does that either you know, disable progress or enable progress? The other one is, um, you know, that context of, of others. What does this mean for others in my life? What does this mean for the people I lead? What does this mean for um, the people dear to me? How do we have those conversations and how do we uh, mentor and support from whether it's a, a formal mentoring or, or peer situation. And then there's what does it mean for an organisation? I mean, look at any um, uh, any sort of um, inquiry that, ha- that happens on an organisation. I think you'll see a lot of inflated confidence in, and decisions that have been made there. Um, so it's not one thing. I think the first thing to do is what is your relationship with confidence and the feeling that you that's something that is needed it can be something that can be enjoyed. But I think the danger is the narrative over the past, you know, couple of decades is that's what women need. And I think that's the piece. We don't say uh, men need more confidence to step into something. We do say women need more confidence. So there's a global collective. I think it's the misguided holy grail of, of, of the, you know, of our times. Well, on that differentiation from a, a gender perspective, you know, you'd shared with me when we talked previously and something that I hadn't known mm-hmm. was that the projected amount of time it's going to take to have uh, pay equality and parity really occur is be anywhere from 70 to 200 years before that happens. Is that is that right? It's frightening, isn't it? It really does depend on the research you read, but that's the, the guide. So in 2019, the World Economic Forum published the Global Gender Report 2020, and they stated that none of us will see gender parity in our lifetimes and nor likely will many of our children or their children. That's a really sobering finding um, of that report. You can actually, you can, so they're saying it will not be attained for 99.5 years. So that was one of their reports. Um, here in Australia, uh, the gender pay gap is 20%. Um, so in data released in November of this year found that men earned 20% more than women in 2019 and 2020. So that's about equates to about 25,500 a year, which is down 0.7 percentage points over the last year. And that then brings us to gender equities take, is going back backwards during COVID and during the pandemic when women are being impacted more. And I was having a conversation with um, uh, a someone I'm partnering with, um, Lee Gassner, recently, and he said, actually, what's really happening is the global events have just exposed the fault lines of gender inequity. You know, so it's um, it has to change. And this is why our focus on fixing women and the narrative around confidence is all about fixing women. We have to fix our systems while we support our women and while we actually um, help men understand the dangers of a patriarchal upbringing, what that does to keep gender equity out of our reach and how it's harming men. 
So it's it's just a big, you know, we'd have to have <laughs> there's a lot of conversations here and a lot of change that needs to happen. Sure. Um, it's certainly systemic change that is lacking right now. Well, I, I don't know if, if everyone, I mean, that's maybe the reason why the gender mm. inequity is continuing to exist for a ridiculous amount of time. How does the patriarchal society, can you talk more about how that impacts not only women, but men as well? Yeah, absolutely. Well, as a man, um, John, think about the beliefs that you, you know, that you feel that you have to live to um, live with or live towards or be. You know, you talked earlier on about there's, there's who we are being while we do what we're doing in the world. And often from a coaching perspective, it's, you know, here's what we do in the world, all really important stuff, who's who we're being in the world. When those two things intersect, um, that's when that alignment um, and, you know, magic happens, things change. So in I don't know what the situations are. I think you're a little bit ahead in of us in, than in Australia with regards to uh, parental leave and, you know, men actually taking parental leave. I know the Nordic countries are leaving us all way behind. Um, men still here believe that taking parental leave is a career-limiting move, you know, and that uh, that's that's patriarchy in action. Okay, so to take care of the family. I'm so sorry to interrupt. Yeah, so take care of the family means that I'm weak, or what does that mean? It could mean all of that, or I'm not the provider, or you know, um, it's. It opens up a whole raft of belief systems of who you feel you need to be and how you need to show up in the world. And then, you know, privilege is invisible to those who have it. It's a phrase that we all know. So there are privileges of being um, a man in the world that women don't experience. You know, we're constantly having to uh, push and fight um, on those so-called ceilings. It's exhausting. You know, it's um, to resolve this, we need to resolve it together. And there's a, there's a gap in the understanding of men collectively because they haven't done the work, they haven't done the exploration or they just haven't thought about it. You know, here in Australia, when the sun sets tonight in Melbourne, uh, in Australia, eight men would have taken their lives to suicide. And World Health Organisation did a report in 2018 that shows a direct correlation between um, gender inequity and men's mental health. So the cost to men of, of, of patriarchal beliefs, habits, ways of showing up in the world are harming men as much as they are, you know, are harming men. Um, and then there's that sort of middle road where I was having a conversation with a, a leader who's someone I actually know. His, his daughters asked me if they could interview me on some gender issues for a school assignment a couple of years ago. Now, at the end of that interview, just when they had line of sight, you know, some other had line of sight on the swimming pool, they thought, yeah, we're out of here. Um, one of the, the two twin girls, one of the girls got up and said, you know what, my dad, my dad said we just can't afford to pay women more right now. Now, he's a leader of in an organisation that has women reporting into him. That's um, an example of just, you know, those conversations are still happening. That belief still exists. Love to pay women more right now. What? How, how is that even in conversation? Mm -hmm. um, so that's, again, that's, you know, and then a financial justification of why it wasn't possible. We've had some conversations since. Um, so, that's yeah, great. I could, you'll have to rein me and I could keep talking about this. Well, you've said before uh, we need good men 
to be great men. Yes. What, what does that look like? So Gunther Swoboda, who's the author of Good Men Great, um, talks about the devastating impact of patriarchy on men and what's required to shift from being a good man to choosing to be a great man. He's got a TED Talk, actually. Um, he's a good person for me to introduce you to, and um, I, I'll we'll talk about that um, after this interview. So it's actually recognising the privilege that, that you have as a man um, and how you can be a better how you can be a better ally and how you can support uh, gender equity in a real meaningful way. So that's some great expertise and work that Gunter has and we're partnering up on some work um, next year with regards to this because at the moment what's missing is how uncovering the deep impact of patriarchy on men and women and on the system and how we can start to um, bring that awareness about and then come then bring men and women together to, to actually solve this problem so that it's not 200 years um, or 99.5, as um, the World Health Organization report um, shared. You have said before also that, you know, there's a tendency in our society to study the unicorns, the extraordinary leaders uh, like Steve Jobs, Aaron Huffington, Bill and Melinda Gates. Um, yet you also caution us against, caution people against doing that. What's wrong with studying the iconic leaders that we all know and look up to? Oh, absolutely. And all extraordinary accomplished leaders and, you know, who have done remarkable things in the world. It's not that study, it's, 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 um, it's again, the beliefs that we have around that. So we love mythical creatures, yeah? And who doesn't love a unicorn? You know, it's part of our growing up, you know, the magical unicorn um, from fairy tales to the unicorn businesses. I think the problem happens is when we elevate um, them as idols and we buy into the instant success stories that are never instant. Mm -hmm. You know, so elevating our, our idols is, I don't think that's helpful for us and I don't think it's helpful for them. Um, so there's no magic formula. There's just a lot of grit. They all worked really hard and have achieved remarkable things in their lives. And obviously many like Arianna Huffington and Bill Gates, et cetera, are still achieving remarkable things. The danger is that we look at that as a society and we go, overnight success, bang, they're brilliant. We can't touch them because that's them over there. And it somehow helps us to feed the narrative of diminishing our own potential. That's the problem. When I sold my company in uh, my privilege shareholding of my company in 2000, you know, all of a sudden people were wanting to interview me about uh, it, it was such an instant success. No, it was a 10-year slog. There's nothing instant about it. I believe that's what's damaging. So idolizing, putting it out of reach, rather than focusing on the skills and the endurance and the um, resilience that, that's involved and the courage that you've had and, and that many people have been successful have, what are some of the skills that you think would help people on that journey to focus on that they can start doing now to create more success in their lives and the people that they serve? Absolutely. Go back to know yourself. You know, um, develop your, your emotional intelligence, your EQ. And that is life's work. It's the fundamental foundation of our lives. And when built really strongly, it's like those deep roots of a tree that no matter what passes, whether it's a light breeze or, or a cyclone, you can endure. You might get battered a little bit, but you won't lose who you are and you'll know what you stand for, what your purpose is in life and what you, what you um, care for deeply enough to make a difference in the world. 
you know, what gets you out of bed, mentoring, coaching skills, um, and as leaders and as as a leader rather, you know, obviously I'm, I'm a trained coach and it's one of the best decisions I ever made was to invest four years of my life in this training. However, as a leader, develop good coaching and mentoring skills as a leader and know when to move between, um, you know, that coach-mentor stance or, you know, when, when needed being more directive. I think situational leadership um, by um, Paul Hersey and Ken Blanchard is still a really good, um, really, really great book. They've, what was it, The One Minute Manager and um, Leadership in the One Minute Manager? So just, you know, get yourself some good resources and absolutely, you know, read up on all of the great leaders that, that you've mentioned, but know that it wasn't magic. They got up every day, even when they didn't feel like it. Um, what did Madonna say? Um, pedestals are for statues, not people. Mm-hmm. So it's the idolization of that that is the issue, not what the people themselves have achieved. You know, as a coach, as a leader, it in large part comes down to conversations with self. That's the know thyself part and also conversations yeah. with others. Would you mind sharing, is there any specific, you know, conversation that you've had either with yourself or with other people that has had a significant impact on you either personally or professionally? Wow, so many. At 57, there's a lot. <laughs> Let me think. That's a really good question. I love that question. Do you know, I think probably one of the most pivotal conversations goes back to when I was seven and my um, heritage is Croatian. My father left Croatia in the late 50s and escaped his country. There was, you know, political turmoil there at the time and he left and ended up in Australia a year or so later. And he wasn't allowed to go back to Croatia for a long time. And then in the 70s, um, when I was seven, he was, you know, were allowed to, he was allowed to go back. And I remember it was very tense because he was very nervous and there was a lot of fear there. So it's a, a time I, I, that is visceral for me. It's a real um, powerful memory, both in my bones, as it were, but, and also sort of um, from a memory point of view. And dad gave me some, um, mum and dad gave me some money to you know, go buy some sweets. So myself and my cousins, we all trotted down to the local shop and I bought, you know, king of the kids, you know, I bought a bunch of sweets for everybody. And I didn't understand the currency at the time. And the currency was a bit unstable and, you know, I gave them some money and I felt like I got a truckload of change. Um, and I went, oh my God, wow, I've got some more money. Let's, some, you know, who wants more sweets? And my cousin Yasna, who is a year older than me, just looked at me with a mixture of, confusion, dismay, judgment probably. Um, but the energy of the way she looked at me created a stillness. And then she just said, why? Why would you buy more sweets when you could buy food and take it home to the family? And it really mm-hmm. jolted me because it was probably many years before I really understood the depth of it, but it jolted me to, to my core because it was the first time I understood privilege. It was the first time that I understood what it means to have it you know, and to glimpse what it means not to have it. Uh, And I never lost the understanding that when we went to visit them, it created financial burden. And then I understood that my father always made sure, my mother always made sure that we didn't leave a, you know, that financial burden footprint on their lives. If anything, you know, change that. So that really shaped me as I grew up. And it's definitely um, a deep memory that I'm, I'm deeply grateful for. Yeah, that's a amazing story and one that I can imagine echoes through what you do as an mm-hmm. example of service and the value of 
being aware of your impact on the people around you and the people that are supporting you and being a support for them, not, not just the burden. Thank you so much, Pollyanna, for sharing that story as well as all of your insights. What's the best way for people to uh, stay in touch with you and get connected with you and your message and your organization? Oh, thank you. Let me just go, I'm going to my website, which is pollyannalankage.com, and I've got a ton of resources on there that people can you know, avail and use, and there's some uh, other um, online videos and leadership uh, content that they can um, jump onto as well. So, yeah, I think you just have a wonderful end of your year, and, you know, we have, so I was saying earlier on, we're, we're shut down here now for, um, uh, for the holiday season. So wishing you all well, but jump onto my website. Uh, all the contact details are on there and reach out. That would be an absolute um, pleasure to, to connect. My Women's Success, my book is available on Amazon. So, you know, please feel free to jump on there as well um, if that um, is something that, that speaks to you. I'll put all links links in the show notes on that one. Thank you again so much for being here. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to meet you and, and, and stay well and, and be safe. And same to you. And for those that are watching and listening, thanks so much for being here. And until next time, develop yourself, empower others, and lead by example. Thanks for listening to Key Conversations for Leaders with your host, John Ryan. If you enjoyed the show, please let us know. Give us a rating or write a review. And if you'd like to connect with me and other like-minded leaders, I invite you to join our Facebook group called Develop, Empower, and Lead, where I deliver free live training every week. If you go to developempowerlead.com, it will redirect you right there. Hope to see you there soon.